Greetings from the team at Vendia, and welcome to Circles of Trust, a podcast for leaders across all industries committed to speeding up innovation at scale and making a profound positive impact on business and the world. Welcome to Circles of Trust, the data sharing and strategy podcast. And I'm thrilled for this episode's guest, Mimi Stiles. Mimi is a data activist. She's a founder and the president of Measure. She's a member of the Social Science Research Council and 2022 Just Tech Fellow. Mimi, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. It's good to be here, Tom. So when we first met, you said you're an activist looking to disrupt research. What does that mean to you? Yeah, I want to kind of point to almost what you what you said here. Um, I'm a data activist, <laughs> true to the core, um, 100% in heart, um, and also in operation, the way I, that I move. Um, you know, when I said that I'm looking to disrupt traditional research, it it it's said with the understanding that traditional research is often, I would say, conducted in a very academic, very white male-centered and led, very institutional framework. Um, What Measure does is that we are reclaiming the narrative about how and why systems of oppression are experienced by powerful Black, Brown, and Indigenous communities. and, and the way that we're doing that is that we are disrupting traditional research by centering the stories and the lived experiences of, you know, people that have experienced different forms of oppression, of neurodivergent people, of veterans, of LGBTQIA plus um, stories. And so what, what this means, though, Tim, is that it it calls for um, for a decolonization and a reframing of what research is and how it's defined and how it's accepted and how one is looked at as a credible researcher. So in my mind, those that are most impacted by these systems or by inequity are the ones that should lead the research, should develop the research protocol, analyze the data. Um, So when we think about, you know, what has been around for a long time, you know, community participatory action research, how there is a spectrum to that. And we are looking to radically move the needle on that spectrum to having communities truly be the ones who are leading the work. yeah, in, in doing so, it creates a more accurate and inclusive account of that actual narrative. And it sounds like the way you describe that, you you kind of have across the spectrum, maybe the, the academic um, kind of institutional, traditional research, and then this community-focused research. Can you can you talk about kind of a, a bit more about that, that picture that you paint, or maybe either the tension across those or just the, the the variance across that spectrum? Yeah, and I think it's more so like, I, I guess in talking about it, I can't help but point to why it's necessary. And so when I think about how traditional research and um, has created harm, and I know that, you know, we'll talk a little bit more about this, but, you know, the Tuskegee experiment, um, you know, labeling 
the the want and the need for an enslaved black body a person to escape the plantation was actually a medical a, a, a medical diagnosis called drapedomania so there has been a history of of us being left out of traditional research and it's been used as a weapon against us and so I would say that the that the need, first of all, is so that we can reclaim the um, we can reclaim power through research, to be honest, because there's so much power in the pen. And I mean, you can literally create systems and and um, totally break down systems just within the power of the pen. And so we are using that power in order to create that, you know, new avenues of research that are actually led by people. And what's happening is that it's challenging that the dominant narrative of history um, by imagining new futures um, through research. You know, and you, you know, you use in in just even that um, kind of explanation or, or context, like terms like power, and I've heard you say data is power. And you said it has the ability to inform and transform, but it can be incredibly harmful. Mm-hmm. So Tell me, tell me more about that. Yeah. Um, and I think it's something that people are starting to truly recognize with the increased datification of our bodies and our movement through society. Every single day, we're realizing that we're being, there are big brothers truly out there. <laughs> Surveillance is everywhere. It is, you know, in your car, many cars have low jack. I mean, you have there are there's so there's so many cameras out there that are watching every single move. Our neighborhoods are now adopting technologies of you know of cameras and and surveillance everywhere. I mean, and so it's it's long been recognized him that data can be biased, right? Insofar that the data reflects the perspectives and the values and the understandings of those that have collected it and analyzed it forever, right? So like. You know, people that have collected and analyzed it forever, it's just perpetuating the same biases. For example, in California, they were seeing that there was a a database that was, you know, saying that these people were probably criminals or probably in gangs, right? Like a gang member database. And you would have you had children that were on this database, right? Like, I mean, come on, like it, there has to there has to be some barometer of ethics, morals, and anti-racism when we think about the collection of data. Um, Data is, and when I say data is power, that's what I mean. Power can be used for good or evil, you know? And so I feel like from what I've, from what we've experienced so far, data for me has been used to reinforce or and perpetuate rather attitudes and beliefs about race, um, crime rates, education outcomes or achievement, you know, the understanding about, um, well, a work that I'm really doing right now in, in art organization is the experiences of Black girls and being adultified. You know, we've we saw a report that came out of Georgetown University back in 2017 that showed through data that black girls are looked at as less innocent, needing less love, needing less protection. And so 
you know, when we think about the power of data to disrupt the, the status quo or to give agency back, or not even back, but to give agency to communities that have historically been oppressed, um, that's where I see the power. And, and for me, the power of good is incredible when I see it happen. <laughs> like when I see organizations using data in order to tell their story, they are getting funded <laughs> to do the work that they've that they are great at. They are able to demonstrate to their community the progress that they're making within their community because now they have the data. They are able to go to city council and speak up against an, uh, um, a ridiculous rule or law that does nothing more than, you know, continue the harm done on their children or their families. They're able to go to the city, to the school, um, the school board meetings and have a real conversation about what's happening. Um, it's not just their anecdotal um, experience, right? Which I say that very lightly because I believe that lived experience is data as well. But now they have the numbers, they have the they have the reports uh, in order to um, to confirm it, um, and unfortunately, they have to confirm it. And, and do you have any favorite examples or examples that really jump out to you where you've seen that data being exposed and, and for good? And to you, that's representative of, of really you know what you're doing every day and, and kind of what your organization's mission is, and you, you want to see more of that. I'd love to hear kind of what what example or two always come to mind when you think of that. Yeah, I have several, um, and it it's definitely a good hair day for me today. So I'm going to start with that. Um, <laughs> the Crown Act, right? Like, so the Crown Act is um, is a is a law that um, that wants that that wants to ensure that you are not discriminated because of the way that you wear your hair, right? Um, we saw through data that especially Black women, were being discriminated because of their hair. We also saw, you know, um, we also saw on, you know, mass media where you saw kids getting their dreads cut off, um, et cetera. So knowing the data, and I think Dove really did a great job at centering the data, to be honest, which created then this new law, right? Um what I just saw, what we did recently here in the city of Austin was that we worked with the city in order to really explicitly show how that data was impacting people and how um, through the Innocence Initiative, this initiative that we're working on, how important it is to protect Black hair and textured hair and people being able to go into work with maybe no hair <laughs> at all and not face the harms of discrimination. And so what we what that resulted in was a new law here in the city of Austin um, passing the Crown Act locally. And we're hoping to see that happen everywhere. There's no reason why, you know, it should just be and Austin should be the first city. I mean, it definitely should be um, everywhere. And so that's what we're really hoping to see. And that's, that's the power of data. That's us, you know, Black women being explicitly um, shown the data and, the, and the, dis the disparity and being able to then go to city council and say, this is a problem. We want to change this. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah, that's a great example. Any, any others? <laughs> yeah, that you love? 
definitely. I have another one here. Um, and this one, this one is more so about um, birthing outcomes, right? Um, and I know that I'm kind of sticking with with um, with the work that Measure has done, but really, this is what we do every day. Um, we love to do this work that we hate to do, you know. Um, and it's it's really about Black women, less, you know, being being less likely to survive a childbirth. Like, you know, it, that, that should not be anything that I have to worry about as a black woman or me have to worry for my daughter's health, you know? Um, and so what, what we ended up doing was we partnered with a collaborative called the Maternal Health Collective um, or Maternal Health Collaborative here locally, um, just to learn what the stories were, what were the experiences of BIPOC women um, and, and birthing outcomes. And what we learned from this research was that Black, Brown, Indigenous women were, were experiencing racism. They had to switch doctors more often. They were, there was this level of fear, right, in birthing. Um, and so through that data, we were able to, you know, provide that back to these organizations that are doing this work every single day. And with that research and report, they were able to get the funding needed in order to be sustainable and, and in order to, to really meet the needs of their community through direct service. Thank you. Thank you for going through both of those. I think it's, you know, especially at the onset, as we talk about um, data and research and regardless if it's, you know, kind of academic driven or community driven, just those stories that kind of personify the the so what of it all um, are really, they're just impactful and, and powerful to hear. What about sharing that information and the, any access to that information? I think one of the things that you told me, I think it was the, the first time we met, is talking about how you work with organizations that traditionally haven't shared or don't share, or aren't really good at sharing data. So can you tell us about you know, what kind of organizations you work with? What what kind of data do they have? And why does sharing that matter? Yeah, definitely. I mean, first of all, sharing sharing data can help communities and and and, and, and all of us truly start to understand where those social inequ inequities are occurring. Many, in many cases, ignorance is bliss, right? And so as long as we don't see it, as long as we're not the ones experiencing it, um, we, it doesn't really matter. And so what we do at Measure is that we're tapping on those big institutions to share data. We are, um, because when they do share it, then those, this, those disparities are front and center, right? And so organizations such as the, um, like the, like education agencies, right? We're, we've been asking education agencies to, to share the data about how about the discipline, the disciplinary outcomes that black and brown kids experience and face every single day, right? And disaggregate that data. And that's the problem is that in many cases you can find data, but it's not disaggregated. And so remember this, Tim, that when data is not disaggregated, then people disappear. In many cases, black girls disappear because you're looking at data sets. Oh, yes, these are our disciplinary outcomes, but you're not really sharing how each group of people are are being impacted by those outcomes. So education, of course, um, another another group that we're 
all that we're always looking to gather more data from is really at the local level cities right? Like I'm really interested, um, you know, in the work that's happening in Pflugerville, Texas. Um, We partnered with a group of concerned community members to, to kind of identify some of the issues that, that were perpetuating racism um, within the city. And so what ended up coming from those meetings was a, um, was an equity commission for the city. So the city actually created an equity commission because of the work that we did. But there's more that needs to be done. The data about how many black and brown, you know, people are, are getting, are gaining city contracts. We need to know that, you know, the data about how much money is actually being spent to disrupt some of the inequalities that we see, you know, within, with black children or brown children within the city, we need to see that. And so it's really about, you know, again, using the, um, the knowledge that we have at measure in order to, to put out FOIA um, requests, you know, to get that information. And then it's also this other piece about deep diving into our own community to draw to draw out those stories and those experiences that have that have um, you know that can really provide a good understanding and a better understanding about what's actually happening. And in, in, in something like the examples that you just went through, do you find that in most cases, or you know, all cases, like the data is there? And it's really about, you know, accessing it, disaggregating it, sharing it with the right people, making it actionable. Or is there, are there times where you dig and you're like, well, we have an, a hypothesis, but we, we actually don't have the right information. And, and that's part of the, the project or initiative. Yeah, um, there's both. But to be honest with you, I think it's still kind of new, right, for okay. a lot of organizations in the collection of data um, and in the collection of data well. Okay. Right. So for for one example, like the police department, right, Barack Obama had a, an incredible initiative, the police data initiative back in 2015, I believe it was, um, where he challenged police departments to provide the data to um, to start making their data publicly available. And we saw very quickly that there are so many police departments that were not prepared to do that. Hmm. And, and the data that was provided in many cases is incredibly messy. Um, and so I think that, but it, but it takes, it takes the, um, it takes people like me, those data activists to push and to push and to ask for data, for it, for us to begin a conversation about it, in order for those data sets to be, um, to be, you know, better useful tools, so that we can then find those inequities, and so that we can better solve for those for those inequities. Um, but yeah, I, I, I definitely feel like it is. It's now becoming. Um, <laughs> I always say this: data is now sexy. You know, it wasn't before. It just wasn't. And now it is. And people are wanting to um, to tap into those, you know, to those tableaus and those Microsoft BIs and, sh- and share their share, um, sh- share their data driven work and everything else. And so it but again, it, it wasn't always like that. And so it's going to take us some time for everyone to kind of, you know, reach a point where data truly is not just um, for the internal organization, but for everyone, 
Yeah. And that's, that to me is like, that's when data is now a utility, right? Data should be available. Um, it should be something that is, um, is, you know, that we're able to leverage and able to use in order to make the society better. Um, and so I, I just, I feel like we're, we're getting there. And in the example you used with like the, the, the police department saying, you know, they weren't prepared to share the data, you know, for, you know, it was, it was kind of a mess, you know, is that kind of the most common reason organizations don't share information or are there kind of other like impediments or just reasons that they, you know, they're sitting on some set of information and it's just hard to get out the door or they don't, can't, can't, can't make it accessible. Yeah, I think there's several, several, several reasons, right? Um, one reason, of course, is I think that there is a level of, you know, when you share data, that means that you're making yourself vulnerable, right, to um, to the people. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so organizations just don't want to be vulnerable and they don't want to be totally 100% accountable to the people. That's just, that's one experience that I have. And I know that that is to be true. Um I, and I think secondly is that, you know, again, organizations are kind of racing to have the capacity to do data well, um, whereas they had not done it well before. And so there's like this, there's like, the, there's a, you know, they, they may have had terrible records management systems in the past. There are organizations out there that are working to do police records management systems better. Um, There's one that comes to mind right now, Mark 43. We've been able to work with them, um, you know, early on in in measures work. Um, And they're thinking deeply about like, how do we do data better so that it's more transparent to our community, but also really great for, um, for, you know, evidence-based decision making at the police department level. So I think that, that those are some of the reasons why, but I also think that it's, you know, I always say this, that like, you know, we, that equity can be measured, right? And when you begin to measure equity, that's where some organizations are not ready, right? Hmm. Like they haven't done the work. They haven't truly, um, they haven't really truly thought about what it means to be diverse or or inclusionary or create a, a a place of belonging or and so I think that there could be a hesitancy about sharing data that truly illuminates what's happening. And I've personally worked with organizations that you know we've learned from the people um, about how they were operating. And it came to the point of like, oh wait, hold on, we don't want to share that just yet. You know? <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I mean, you work with measure, so we're going to share it. So <laughs> <laughs> at the end of the day. But yeah, I, I just feel like there's a there might be a fear. I think there's a fear. Yeah. Hey, talk so maybe just to shift a little bit now, you know, we I I think um, you know, up until now, I, I think you've been kind of painting a picture of you know your vision and and kind of what you see happening, especially in the you know, the data sharing space, but what about um, your vision for measure in particular? What, what do you see as measure's role in the world? Yeah. So I'm going to give you this. This is a kind of um, a framework of inquiry that I've been thinking about. Um, 
as a researcher with the Social Science Research Council, they they had um, so they've selected me as a fellow, right, for the next two years. And but what they did was they put us all up on the mountain. They took us up to the mountain in the Catskills to just really think, to have an opportunity to think before we dove straight into this fellowship. And when I was up at that mountain, what I came up with this this um, framework of inquiry. I said to myself, you know, perhaps a measure of equity is the absence of fear. And perhaps a measure of equity is the absence of pain. And then just a couple of days ago, I was on another panel and I was listening to the stories of Black women, of Brown women, of Indigenous women, and, and thinking to myself, and also listening to the stories of white women. And then I came up with this, uh, this understanding that perhaps a measure of equity is the presence of joy, meaning that, mm. you know, it's not just, it's us kind of all working together to get through these to get through the mud together. We've been through so much as a country, right? As a society, we've experienced so much institutional racism, so much structural racism, um, so much oppression in every form and every and at every level, right? But maybe when I'm when we're thinking about imagining this this world, we have to start with perhaps, because perhaps really holds space for uncertainty, but it also truly holds space for possibility. And I think that's my vision for measure. So measure is really taking on this notion of possibility, this position of possibility. Um, And so through our work, we're taking on systems of generational oppression and redistributing the power of research to our community so that we're able to really redefine this narrative that we've all been in together. You know, it's interesting. I hear, you know, that the perhaps in the suggestion of kind of this notion of possibility, but also talk about, I'm really intrigued by what it seems like part of your, you know, thinking kind of resulted in, which is, it seems like you started with this idea of the, the absence of something, like the absence of fear. And then it seemed like there was this idea of like, well, what, what gets replaced with this? And you said, well, the, the, the possibility or potential for joy. So there's some, tell me more about the, the kind of that tension. I don't know what it is there. That, kind that of was a journey, Tim. You're making me dig deep here because that was a true journey, like in order to get from this absence of fear to the presence of joy. And, and I'm still, I'm still trudging through that, to be honest with you, but what I, but where I, where I'm at right now in that journey is truly that I want to be able to trust that my 17 year old son, who is a almost six, well, six foot something black boy can go, can drive his car to school and come back and not be harassed by the police. I don't want to be afraid to have him do that. I want to be able to know that my 23 year old daughter, when she's ready, hopefully 10 years from now to go have a baby that she can go to the hospital as a black girl with dreads and be believed about her pain, right? I want to know that, um, that my, you know, my mother-in-law who needs access to healthcare is going to get that access to healthcare. And so that for me is where I was at, you know, in the, with that first statement is that 
It's the absence of. It's really holding space for the absence. How likely is it that my son is going to come home safely? How likely is it, is my daughter going to birth and, and be okay with birthing? How likely is it, is my mother-in-law going to get the healthcare access that she needs? But then this joy piece, right? This joy piece is, is I believe it's owned by us collectively. Perhaps a measure of joy, I'm sorry, perhaps a measure of equity is the presence of joy. That means that it takes all of us together in order to get there. You And joy happens through pain, right? Joy happens through pain. We've been through so much, again, as a, as a country and as a society that we need to get to this perhaps joy at the end, and we can only do it together. Now, mind you, the absence of fear and the absence of pain is not on me as a Black woman to solve for, right? I don't own that. That is the system. That is those that are, that are perpetuating racism within their organizations and in their spaces. That is you know, the, these, the stories of, you know, um, that are being passed down generationally about who has more power and who does not, that's who owns that, right? But there is a opportunity for me to engage in this anti-racist world and in, in this, and imagining this new utopic, you know, society where we all are truly included. And that is by us working together to get to that place of joy. Thank you. Thank you for sharing kind of the words that part of the journey that it sounds like you're currently on as you, you kind of think about like where that, that role of joy then comes in or where, especially I like how the, the framing with perhaps, and then kind of thinking about a measurement of that. It's really, um, I don't know. It's fascinating. I haven't, I haven't thought enough about it. So, but I'm, I'm excited to just be like, exposed to those that idea to be able to 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 kind of consider that now well you know you 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 just walk through kind of painting a picture of you know this you know use the word utopia so like if you can kind of you know get anything at least related to like a, a tangible set of you know the kinds of things that measure is really trying to deliver on over the course of the next you know year or so to unlock something as it relates to sharing this this precious and you know potentially powerful information, you know what would you love it to be? <laughs> well, first of all, let me just say too, I, the the, the um, there's a incredible group of Black women um, on the East Coast, and they've developed what's called the Building Utopia Deck. This hmm. is a, a a game that one can play, and it's a game that one can play that really centers in, um, you know, imagining new futures for, um, for Black people. Um, and it's not just for Black people, it's for everyone, right? And so that's where, you know, we're really drawing upon my identification as an Afrofuturist, too, as a person who really draws from my the past generations and generations of, you know, of, of ancestors who have brought me to this place right now today, sitting with you, you know, and me also at the same time holding space for seven to eight generations from now of that Black girl that came from me, you know, and the legacy that I hope to create for that Black girl. Um, 
And so that's, that's, that's that first part of, that I just want to address. But, but then as I also think about that and kind of reflect on the question that you have for me right now, I personally would love to gain a deeper understanding um, about how artificial intelligence can be used in a way that does not create a deeper pit of racial disparities. Right. Like that's where my mind is really excited and my heart is excited about right now, because we know that as AI rapidly increases, um, it's so incredibly important right now. It was actually so incredibly important like years ago to engage in it so that it's um so that it does not cause additional harm to the BIPOC community. And so in, in, in one way, I, I, I know that I'm, I can engage right now and a way that I am engaging right now is I, I just um, solidified, well, we're solidifying a partnership with a, an incredible company here in Austin called Kung Fu AI. And they're really truly holding space for like, you know, we need to create and innovate in a way that does not widen these gaps, right? Um, so that's where I'm at right now is really about how do we train AI technologies to not um, widen these gaps and then maybe even potentially start to close some. And is the the main concern that AI would perpetuate some of the kind of biases that are just embedded in the data? Yeah, again, data in, data out, right? So like if we don't engage, if people that look like me don't engage, and in the work of developing um, these systems, then we're going to be left out and then we're probably going to also be harmed. Um, We've already seen it happen, right? Like there's been multiple stories and multiple um, examples of how, you know, black faces or black hands are not seen, (laughs) you know, through through the development of these different types of technologies. We've seen, you know, how, how AI can, you know, paint, a, can now create art, right? And so, and some of that art might be harmful if we are not the ones that are helping to create these algorithms and, and, and truly engaging in, um, in the development of these technologies. It, you know, Ruha Benjamin is one that said um, that we, the people, need to be the ones that are creating technology. We need to truly engage in these conversations and not, and then also developing, right? Um, and so that, yeah, that's that's where I'm most excited right now. And then, what about as it relates to um, you know some of the the work that you kind of have, you know, maybe even a little bit nearer term that you're working on, you know, over the course of the next few months, half a year with Measure. What are you most worried about? But and then, what are you most excited about uh, in that more nearer term horizon? Mm, um, okay, so I think that, and and I guess this also kind of ties back to some of that that work, the work that we're doing with Kung Fu AI around AI technology. So what I'm most thinking about is, so we're creating a social impact platform right now at Measure. Um, And this social impact platform is where powerful Black, Brown, and Indigenous leaders are then connected. Um, They're able to report their impact through what we call community impact metrics. 
they're able to find funding um, and team up as a force multiplier for change. And so that's really, that's where my, that's where a lot of my, of my thinking is going every single day is the creation of this technology. Um, I'm asking myself questions like, how do I create technology that's safe? And mm -hmm. I'm starting with that, right? How do I create technology that is going to see a black face? Whereas technology in the past may have not seen even like literally seen a black face to fit inside of the, you know, the picture. Like, how do I create technology that is not going to, um, you know, is that is, is not going to create additional surveillance that doesn't need to be there, right? Um, that could potentially create harm. And so that to me, this is the most important work for my, for me right now, for my organization, this is the most important work. I'm, I'm super excited for organizations and companies that are recognizing this and that are coming behind us, um, you know, to support this work. Companies like Vindia, companies, you know, organizations like the Social Science Research Council that believe that people of color need to be the ones developing code. We need to be the ones that are, you know, um, in control of, of the algorithm and of the code, right? And so, um, so yeah, that's, that's where I'm at right now. You know, this platform truly is being positioned to be an anti-racist social platform where we can be intentionally exposed to funding, not passively. Remember, like, Black-led social change organizations get like, what, 1% of philanthropic funding? 1%. We are that other 1% that nobody talks about, right? It's, it's truly going to be a place where people that look like me can, can measure their progress and where we have a database now where we can say, this is how much we've done in the past year, fund us. <laughs> right? It's going to be a place where we can, you know, truly champion one another's goals. We do that, right? Um, in real life already. We are a people that, you know, even if we didn't have the funding, we we're going to do the work. But we could do the work even better <laughs> if we had the resources that we need in order to do it well. So that's what I'm, that's what I'm very, very um, excited about. I keep using that word, but I think I, I love to use that word. Um, and that, that is really what's truly bringing me joy right now is, is the development of this new technology. And, 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 I, and I'm also hopeful about how I might think about or imagine um, AI technology, you know, being incorporated into it. And I say that too, Tim, as a, as an extreme critic for artificial intelligence and technology as a whole, just to be honest with you, I have been hurt by technology and that's the truth. And so I'm using that pain um, in order to get to that, in, in order to get to that joy. That, I mean, that's a powerful way to, to start to wrap up this conversation, which is to hear some of the, the pain you just suggest uh, that you came from technology and then the 180 of, and so I'm working on a technology platform. Um, I mean, it's, it's really tremendous. Um, what about, 
maybe just some final thoughts, you know, like, uh, especially as people listen to you and say, Hey, you know, how, either how can I get involved or, you know, what do you, you know, what you ask of, um, you know, kind of the, the people who have who've listened to this? Yeah, I mean, first of all, Measure is always looking for brilliant people <laughs> that are just interested um, in being an advocate for, for change. Um, and so what, what we have on our website, and you can always go to our website, it's wemeasure.org. Um, wemeasure.org, we measure. And we're always looking for, for, for folks that are just, again, just interested in data activism, you know, wanting to use the power of data for change. Um, and it might be super project-based, like, you know, being able to provide three or four hours out of your month um, to analyze a data set or, um, you know, and so that, that is always incredibly needed. Um, but I think what's, I think, the the overarching ask for me would be, you know, trust black women in the space, trust women of color in the space. We know what we need. We know we may not know exactly how to code it, right? But we know what it needs to look like. And and we and we have the experience and we have the um because of measure and other organizations like mine, we have the data to prove it. And so, yeah, trust black women in this space of technology and development because we're we're pretty phenomenal. <laughs> uh, Mimi, thank you so much. I mean, thank you for your time is I think the the obvious one, but just thanks for sharing your vision, your expertise with us. It, it was really a, a wonderful way to spend the time. So uh, I thank you very much. And, and so do our listeners. So thank you. Thank you, Tim. Thanks so much to our guest, Mimi Stiles. For all the real talk on data sharing, I really appreciate it. And thank you too for listening in. If you're interested in learning more about the various organizations, products, or research mentioned in this episode, visit vendia.com resources slash circles of trust for all the links. When you're ready to keep the conversation going, download or stream all of our episodes on Spotify, Apple Music, and the top streaming services. And if you have a point of view on the challenges, power, and potential of real-time data sharing, want to be a guest on the show, email us at trust at vendia.com or DM Vendia HQ on Twitter and mention Circles of Trust. Thanks again for joining us in Circles of Trust. And if you like what you hear, please take a moment to drop us a few stars in a favorable review or share Circles of Trust with your colleagues and network. Until next time. <laughs>